Good morning, everybody. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, this morning, I will be reading the scripture coming from Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 through 17. And I ask that we read it together. <laughs> All right, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of, dark, of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. Put the belt, I'm sorry, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In the addition to this, take up the shit of faith, which, with, which I'm sorry, with which, you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, Tri-Cities Church. How are y'all doing? All right. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. It's good to gather in this space. And I was sharing with the worship team uh, this morning as we were gathering in the back and uh, getting ready to spend time uh, um, in prayer uh, for this morning. I was sharing with them how encouraged I am uh, that we get to worship on uh, Father's Day uh, because we get to come in places like this and see uh, fathers who are raising their kids up in the way of the Lord and are making such a huge difference in our world um, by loving the Lord publicly in their homes and bringing their kids to church and teaching them how to walk in the way of the Lord. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, uh, that God is able to take your effort and multiply it and do marvelous things with it, and that you are changing generations by your yes uh, to the Lord, by you saying, yes, I will take my children to church. Yes, I will read scripture with my children in my home. Yes, I will pray over my children every day. By your saying yes to the Lord, you are changing uh, the generations that are to come. So we, on this Father's Day, we celebrate fathers and all the good work um, that you are doing. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us for the first time, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Cities Church. We're glad that you are here. Uh, there are cards in the seats in front of you. Uh, and uh, if you're here with, the first, with us for the first time, we'd love for you to fill out one of those cards just so we can know that you are here, uh, so that we could pray for you. Uh, if there's anything else that anyone would like us to pray about, whether you're here for the first time or that you've been here many times, uh, feel free uh, to, to grab one of those cards, fill it out after the message when we take communion or buckets on these tables. Uh, feel free to drop that card in one of those buckets, and uh, we will be joining you in prayer uh, this week. We, um, one of the great uh, uh, privileges we have as, as a staff here at Tri-Cities Church is to be able to pray uh, with our, for and with our church. In fact, um, so we, what, little known fact, uh, maybe not known, but we, we have our staff meeting every uh, Monday morning, and, and, uh, and we get together around nine-ish, 
and, uh, and we spend time uh, kind of planning out service and those kinds of things, but then we also spend time in prayer. And, and in fact, we, we used to, um, because things come up as we talk, we used to spend time uh, in prayer at the end of our, of our, of our meeting, but we found that, um, that, um, that some of us start fading and getting hungry uh, and ready for lunch, and then we'd end up rushing our prayers. And so we moved our prayers to the beginning of our meeting so that we could spend long time in prayer for and with you. And so you can be assured that we are spending time on Monday mornings uh, praying with and for you. So feel free to fill out one of those cards, and we'd love to, to be there with you in whatever journey you're going through in life. Hey, we're continuing our city. We're calling series. We're calling Suit Up. Uh, it's a series in Ephesians chapter 6, and really it's the scripture that says, put on the full armor of God. And here we are in week four of this series. We saw in the first week that we have a real enemy, that it's not imaginary, it's not something that's in our mind, it's not something that just motivates us, this isn't some manipulative tactic that God is using to say, hey, there's an enemy who's walking around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour, pretend that he's behind you, and run this race of perseverance. That's not what God is saying. God is saying we have a real enemy. There's an enemy of man, and there's an enemy of the plan of God, and the enemy is seeking to stay Stand in the way of what God wants to do in your family, through your life, in your neighborhood, on your workplace. God wants to do incredible things for the good of this world and for his own glory. And the enemy does not like that, and he wants to stand in the way of that and will do so every opportunity he gets. And so if we aren't standing firm, if we aren't preparing ourselves, we provide space for the enemy to step in and distract us from the will of God. And ultimately, the will of God gets sacrificed. Um, it gets sacrificed. It gets sacrificed on the altar of the idols that are in our world that come in and distract us and pull our attention away from God. And so we saw, we're seeing in this series that, hey, we, we have to be prepared to wage war against the enemy. And we saw that the way we wage war is by standing firm. We don't go after the enemy because he's smarter and stronger than we are. And if we go after him, he will defeat us. We will lose. God has already gone after him and has defeated him. So this scripture calls us over and over again to stand firm with a belt of truth buckled on. Right, to stand firm on the word of God and what God has taught us and in the way of God because that's the best way for us to live our lives. We saw last week the scriptures calling us to stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness on. That is God's own righteousness that he's given us and that we actually live into that righteousness. And as we participate in that process with God that scriptures call sanctification, that we are protected from the enemy. So we aren't fighting him as in going after him, but we're rather standing firm with the tools and the weapons that God gives us, the armor of God. Um, and, and, and by standing firm, we defeat the enemy. We defeat the enemy simply by standing firm. And last week we saw this, and this is the thing that's been encouraging me most all throughout this week, is that God has given us his armor. This isn't generic. This isn't imitation. This isn't some knockoff brand that works half as good. The Bible says put on the full armor of God. God has given us his armor that is proven to be victorious. And then this week we're going to see what the Bible is teaching us to wear on our feet as we wage war against the enemy. Well, let's, let's pray and then we'll get into our message this morning.
God, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to open the scriptures and to study them and to listen for your voice that speaks to us through your word. God, I pray that you guide us into your word, that you help us to understand the day that it was written in, that we can understand the day that we stand in. God, I pray that you help us to get this imagery right um, so that we so that we can have imaginations that are fueled by your word of what you're able to do in and through our lives. God, we thank you that we don't have to fight for victory, but that we get to fight from victory because you've already won. And so, God, I pray that as anxiety raises up inside us, that you will tear it down, that as fear raises up within us, God, I pray that you will tear it down. God, I pray that if... Um, Feelings of inadequacy raise up within us, God, that you would tear those down and know that we have no need for anxiety and worry. We have no need for fear. We have no need to be adequate because our God has gone before us, and he's adequate and strong and mighty and good. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, war... Um, war is a high-tech enterprise. In fact, long are the days um, where war was fought in close combat. There was a time when there was man-on-man, -man, when they had simple tools that were often handmade from natural materials, like swords that were hand-forged by blacksmiths and artists that would forge these swords out of metal, and you would have wood that was carved to make shields, and you would have this sheer force of two people going up against one another. And long gone are those days because war is a high-tech industry. In fact, those things that existed in those days, the swords that were hand-forged and the shields that were hand-carved have now been placed in the realm of art, right? It's the kind of thing that people spend a lot of money for and hang on the walls of their homes and put in cases because long gone are the days when soldiers had to go to battle with swords and, and shields, right? Times have changed. In fact, this technology has always been pushing forward the way we wage war in this world. In fact, technology is rapidly changing the way we wage war in the world. Um, there, there are drones that are all over the place now that are beginning to replace, although I don't think they will ever totally replace uh, the need for fighter pilots, but there are drones that are giving us the ability to go in and see different areas and wage war in some ways with without putting human lives at risk. Uh, Lockheed has designed this bullet that has these fins on it that's able to correct course and hit moving targets. Boeing, and this is one of the coolest things, I think, Boeing has designed this system that you're able to put on Army vehicles that sends out this plasma force field that is able to block incoming blasts that are coming. Technology has taken over uh, the battlefield. In fact, Gone are the days, well, maybe not totally gone, but um, we are distancing ourselves from the days of man-to-man, hand-to-hand combat. In fact, you can fight the enemy without ever physically laying your eyes on the enemy these days because technology is changing the way we wage war. 
War is a high-tech enterprise, but it has always been a high-tech enterprise. In fact, when we see in the scriptures that we're looking at this morning and we look back in that day that the Bible was written, although modern, in comparison to modern technology, the things back then may seem simple and, and they seem like they lack technology, but in their day, these simple handmade tools, these things that were forged by a blacksmith and these things that were carved out of wood were high-tech for their day. They, had, they were always pushing forward, always progressing in their use of tools and weaponry. They were always coming up with something new, something better, something that would, that would be more sufficient uh, than what they had before. And so we see it throughout history that oftentimes the civilizations that rise and thrived were the civilizations that had the best tools, the best technology that were pushing their way forward in this world that's driven by technology. And when we look in biblical times, we see the Roman army. And the Roman army, what they did was they had a way of combining both strategy and technology to build this military powerhouse. And so they were the strongest people of their day. They were a force that no one could stand up against because they had this strategy on the one hand, but then they had this technology that was able to live up to the strategy that they had. And so you see that the Romans were pioneers in military strategy. In fact, their, um, their strategy books read something like a football playbook. I think we have an image of what it was like. And so we would see uh, the Roman army might line up something like this, where you would have um, um, legions of soldiers that are grouped together, and they would have this, these marching orders of strategies as they went out to the battlefield. And one of the, the things that they had that was a signature Roman strategy was these reserves that are in the back, right? They always had someone in the backfield uh, just in case the enemy was able to make his way around the army and try to attack them from the rear. And so they came up with these strategies that were innovative for their day, and they read much like a football playbook. In fact, there's another uh, play that they had or strategy um, that they had that they would line up. And when they were lined up like this, you could see the right wing would swing around the left wing of the enemy because the enemy's left side was often weaker than their right. And so they would swing around and the reserves would move up into place and they would attack the enemy from the left because the Romans were military strategy pioneers. And then they had this defensive strategy, which I love. You can see some images of this online. And they had ways of using their, uh, their shields uh, like no one else. And so there was this one move that the Romans innovated. And this was a defensive strategy where they would take their shields and they'd put them in front of them. And the back line would put them over their heads. And they would make this barrier that no one and nothing could get through. And there were times where they needed to simply defend themselves. And they would do this move. It was called the test. Dudo, I think, which is Latin for tortoise. And so it was like a shell uh, that covered them. Um, and they were able to move rather quickly like this when they were on the battlefield. 
And here's the thing. They had all these strategies, but if they lacked technology, then they were not able to implement their strategies. And so what we see in this scripture where it talks about uh, putting on the, um, uh, our feet, right, the, the, the technology that is to cover our feet, what we see is that the Romans had these sandals that they would wear. And there were these sandals that they would wear on their feet, and that was a part of their military technology. They were high tech for their day. They looked like something you might buy at Walmart uh, or something like that today. But for their day, these sandals were high tech. And in fact, they were so important for them to be able to implement their strategy and to defeat the enemy because they gave them firm grip, grip and standing no matter what terrain they were on. In fact, they looked something like this, like some, sand, well, maybe not something you get at Walmart. <laughs> uh, they, they, it, but they would have these spikes there on the bottom, almost like football cleats that an that a, a athlete would wear that would give them grip and the ability to move and the ability to be confident and sure no matter what terrain they were on. And so soldiers, um, man, soldiers valued their shoes more. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a soldier. Um, but, but a soldier would value his shoes more than anything else. Because here's the thing. You can have your sword. You can have your helmet. You can have your shield. You can have on your breastplate. You can have on everything else. You can have the best strategy. But if you're not able to move, then all of that is in vain. All of that is worthless. You see, there's nothing that gave a soldier uh, uh, as much peace as a quality pair of foot gear, right? Whatever you had on your shoes, on your feet, right? As long as it was quality, as long as it was up for the task, there was nothing that gave them peace like that because they knew that their strategy, especially for the Roman army, they knew their strategy was good. But if their shoes weren't good, they weren't able to implement it. They weren't able to move in the way necessary They weren't able to do the things that the commander was instructing them to do. You see, this footgear, these what I like to call tactical sandals, these tactical sandals were an essential part of their military technology. They had to have it in order to implement their strategy and ultimately in order to defeat the enemy. And what we see in this scripture in Ephesians chapter 6 is that our footgear is an essential part of our spiritual armor. That without it, we cannot live out the will and plan of God. Without it, we cannot stand against the enemy. Our footgear is an essential part of our spiritual armor. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 6, the passage that Jaquel read with us, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Listen to what it says. It says, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the that with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, right? Your feet fit it with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And so what he's showing us right here in this passage, that on our feet we are to wear the gospel of peace. That this is our spiritual armor, that the gospel of peace is to be covering our feet. And just like a soldier needed his tactical sandals on his feet in order to implement the strategy of the commander. So we need the gospel of peace covering our feet 
if we're going to live out the will of God in this world. So you may be saying, like, what is this, what is this gospel of peace, right? The scriptures teach us and use this word over and over again, talks about the gospel, literally means the good news. But ultimately, the good news is that God has acted in to, to restore fallen creation, to redeem fallen creation, and ultimately to restore fallen creation back to what God intended it to be. I don't know if y'all remember that we had this image several months ago, and I don't even remember what message it was in, but it, I, it really resonated with me, so we'll bring it back. There was this image that we had of the different chapters in the uh, biblical narrative and the narrative of our world. It begins with creation, right? If we get in Genesis chapter 1, God created. In the beginning, God created all this. He created the world. He spoke things into existence. Out of the mind and the imagination of a good God came this good creation that met every one of our needs, that was working in the way that God intended it to work, a creation that was full of peace, where we were in harmony with one another, where all of our needs were being met. In the beginning, that's what God created. In fact, the Bible says that God declared it to be good. Like when God created this world, he looked at it, he declared it to be good. That's God, the one who has the ability to be critical. My wife says I can be critical sometimes. Um, but God, and, and I don't have any, like I don't, I don't have any, any right to be critical, right? Some of y'all know. Uh, yeah, I don't have any right to be critical. I, like, I have no ground to stand on in being critical. Uh, but, but God, the one who made all of this, has every right to be critical, right? The one who's holy and righteous, the one who's able to see what's good and right and what it should be like. He had every right to say, hey, this is, a, this is flawed. This is messed up. This shouldn't be. We got to get this thing right. But God looks at what he made and he says it is good because it was meeting all the needs of creation. But here's what happened. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that humans rebelled against God. They knew the way of God, but began to doubt the way of God. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we said the enemy's greatest uh, tool is deception. Like if he could just deceive us, get us into thinking things that God did not say, get us into believing things that are not of God. If he could just deceive us because he can't overpower us because God has already won and God is with us. And so the enemy's biggest tool is deception. Over and over again, it's what he used first. And over and over again, it's what he continues to use as he seeks to to um, distract us from God's will. And he did that with Adam and Eve, and he did that with every man and woman since. And that's the fall. That's humans turning away from the will of God, choosing their own will, their own way over God's will. But then God sent his son to get it right on our behalf, not to get it right, just just so he could look at us and say, ha ha, look at what I did, right? Not, not like, not like something that, I mean, I wouldn't do that, but not like something that one of us might do where we would, we would kind of hold it over and taunt someone and what we're able to do, what they're not able to do, but he got it right for us, right? He won the victory. He claimed us back by his getting it right, not by him saying, I got it right now. Follow my example. You get it right. If you can get it right too, then maybe you can go where I'm going. No, he says, I got it right for you. And if you believe in me, now you can go where I'm going. And now you can uh, freely, um, you can freely 
and in the realm of God's grace, live into right living. So he redeemed us back as his own. He claimed us back as his own. He says, you are safe in my care, right? And and that's where we're living, right? This world that we're living in is fallen, but here we are as we become believers in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed of God, right? We are redeemed by God. We are God's very own, and no matter what comes, no matter what happens, God says, you are mine, I will protect you, that the enemy cannot steal you out of my grasp, that he can't take you from my will, he can't come in and destroy the plans of God because you are Firmly in my care, and I'm all-powerful. That's what God says to us at this point. And that we long for and work towards a day when we will be fully restored. And these are like the chapters of the gospel. It is a God that came into this fallen world, and he rescues us, not so that we can be uh, like swept out of this world, but he rescues us so that in this world we can be redeemed in the power and in the hand of a God Almighty who is holding us secure and safe. And so in this world, right, in this fallen, broken world, while we're longing for it to be restored, we can live as redeemed people, that is, live as people who are actually living in to the will and plan of God for our lives. And we can do so knowing that we are safe and secure and that the enemy, although he is, you know, going around like a roaring lion and he's our enemy and he's seeking who who he can devour, that he has no power over us. And so when this verse in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the gospel of peace being on our feet, this readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, he's saying once you get this gospel, right, once you get the chapters of this story, once you get the fact that you are standing in this broken, fallen world, but secure in the grasp of God, right, that nothing can come and take you out of God's hand, like once you get that, you're able to have this peace that doesn't make sense according to the circumstances that are surrounding you in this world. In fact, Jesus talks over and over again about this peace, and the Bible keeps um, teaching us about this peace that we have as a result of the gospel. If you look in John chapter 16, listen to this, and I'm just going to flip to a couple of verses. You can flip there with me, or you can write them down, and you can come back to them later. Uh, Listen to what it says in John chapter 16. Jesus says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, I've told you these things, and this is before going to the cross, and he's kind of laying out the plan of God, and he's not, um, (laughs) he's not like, uh, He's not just laying out the good things and the benefit of God's plan. Let's just put it that way. Like he's like, this thing's going to be a rough ride. Um, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. And so he's teaching them that because of the gospel, because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, or at least at this point, what God is doing through Jesus Christ, we can have peace in the midst of a broken world. So that even though things aren't going right and all those things don't look right and all those, the circumstance does not, um, is not one that that motivates or fuels our peace, what God has done is the source of our peace. Or you can look at Colossians uh, chapter 3, and this is where Paul is writing uh, to the church in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse, verse, verse uh, 23. Um, l- listen to what he, what he says there. If I can... 
Verse 15. <laughs> I'm looking at verse 23. Um, I was like, wait, that's not what it was supposed to be. Uh, verse 15, listen to what it says. It says, let the peace of Christ, thank you, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And so he's saying, hey, in this world, there's going to be other things that try to rule your heart, right? In fact, anxiety will try to rule your heart. Fear will try to rule your heart. Desire will try to rule your heart. Jealousy will try to rule your heart. All these things that have a way of driving us and ultimately driving us outside of the will of God will try to rule your heart. But what Paul writes to the the church is, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. There's another verse in Philippians in uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, uh, verse, verse 4, um, listen, listen to what it says, says there. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the God of peace, right? The God of peace, which, no, and the peace of God. (laughs) The words were switched in there. I swear I was seeing one thing. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? The peace of God will guide your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And where he's talking about this peace over and over again in the New Testament, what he's showing us is this peace is not like a... um, and it's not something that we learned um, throughout life, right? It's not something that we learned throughout the course of life. It's not something that we, uh, that we can pick up a book and we can learn how to have more peace in our lives. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it functions. It's this peace that's firmly rooted in the gospel. It's not about a circumstance, right? It's not about a situation. It's not about something that has happened It's about someone that has already secured our peace. And that's what Paul sees in Ephesians. If you look back where we were in Ephesians, and you flip a couple of chapters back from that in Ephesians chapter 2, listen to what what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse verse 13. He says, But now in Christ you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, right? So this isn't like, this isn't learned peace where we've learned to like let the situation, the circumstance kind of roll off our back, right? This isn't, this isn't learned peace where we've learned to like pause and count to 10 when we feel anxiety rising, right? This isn't, this isn't learned peace, like that, that kind of peace that you have when, uh, when you get to a point where you just don't care anymore, right? Um, this isn't that kind of peace, right? He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, and I'll talk a little bit about what all this means. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So what he's saying is what Jesus did and the reason why he is our peace in this gospel story, why as a result of that we can have incredible peace in this world, like actual peace, not by a strategy or technique that we've picked up and learned, but it's simply because Christ has done this incredible thing on the cross that he died for the sins of the world. So this broken place isn't destined to be broken forever, right? That this is not our future. This is not our hope. This is not the place that we ultimately will be. But God is restoring this place, and we are the redeemed of the Lord. And that's evident in this. And in, in, in the first century church, it was, it was evident in this. There were two groups. There were Jews. There were Gentiles. Jews were the people of God. Gentiles were the people outside the, the people of God. And Jews were the, the Jews were, um, yeah, they felt like they belonged to God and that um, there, there was this tendency towards superiority in them. Or they were like, yeah, we are the people of God, the only ones. And, and the reason why this rocked their world so much is that Paul's writing to the church, and he's going, hey, those who um, might not have grown up believing in God the same way you did, those who may have been living according to a different um, code of conduct up until now, by belief in Jesus Christ— they have been brought into your family. You are now brothers and sisters with them. And together, right, Jews and Gentiles, you are being reconciled to God, right? You are in right relationship with the God of creation who holds you securely in his grasp. And so what we're seeing here in this passage is he's saying that he became for us our peace. And as he becomes for us our peace, we actually live out that peace in our lives. You see, this is, um, what, he, what he's showing us is this, is that these, um, like, like the tactical sandals uh, that Roman soldiers wore, right? Just like, like those sandals provided peace for soldiers. It is the gospel that gives us peace. It is the gospel that reminds us that in any situation and with any circumstance surrounding us, we're able to have sure footing in this world. That it's the gospel that gives us the victory. Paul is reminding the church that you can have all the strategy in the world, right? That you can hear the teachings that say, like, when trouble comes to stand firm. And if you're simply trying to stand firm without that firmness being rooted in the peace given by the gospel, then you're not going to stand firm and ultimately you are going to stumble and fall. You see, over and over again, the Bible's reminding us to stand firm. In fact, there's another book of the Bible in Colossians uh, that was written about the same time 
as Ephesians. In fact, if you read uh, Colossians and Ephesians together, you'll start seeing some similarities uh, where uh, Paul was taking some of the things that he was thinking and writing to the Ephesians, and he's thinking the same thing, and he's writing those things uh, to the Colossians as well. And so to the church uh, uh, there, uh, when he writes the book of Colossians, he says this. Look at, look at verse 21 in verse chapter 1. He says, once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That sounds good, right? That he's reconciled us to himself. But then look at what it says in verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, right? If you stand firm with the the, um, gospel of of peace on your feet, um, then all this, this is yours, right? You're going from fall to restoration. You can be assured of that in this world. And so um, practically, I think what this looks like for us is... um, we take the gospel and we drive it deep into our hearts. We take the promises of God, we drive them deep into our hearts. Part of this is gathering with the, fellowship, the, uh, the, fellowship, the fellowship of believers, gathering uh, with the church, other believers, and listening to the word of God read and encouraging one another through the scripture. And letting the gospel be driven deep into our heart. Letting this truth give us peace. Part of this is setting up reminders in our life. And that's what um, sometimes we talk about uh, devotional time in the church or accountability groups or these things and that, that, that have become popular or at least trendy at different phases throughout the history of the church. And the Bible never says that you have to have an accountability group. Right? And, and the Bible never says that you have to be a part of a small group Bible study that meets on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. Or the Bible nev- never says that you have to get up and read your Bible first thing in the morning and start your day with prayer. The Bible never says that you have to uh, pray before you, uh, before you eat a meal and that if you don't, like your food is somehow cursed. The Bible never says that you have to get on your knees before you go to sleep and, and, and pray before the God of creation. The Bible never teaches us that these things are mandatory and it's not legalistic in that kind of way in these practices that have become a, a part and, and, and some, for some of us an essential part of our day-to-day routine. But the Bible does say that the gospel must be driven deep in your hearts and that if you're gathering with a small group on a regular basis and y'all are studying the scriptures and sharing life with each other and you're seeing how the scriptures are encouraging one person and you're talking about how it's encouraging you, this gospel is going to be driven deep in your heart and it's going to overflow in peace. And if you're coming to church on a regular basis and you're celebrating the victory of Jesus with the community of believers, you're drawing the gospel deeper into your heart and I guarantee you that it's going to overflow in peace and that if you 
are getting every opportunity you can, whether it's when you rise or before a meal or before you go to bed, and you are humbling yourself before the God of creation and praying to him, believing that he is good always, then it's going to overflow in peace. And so this this scripture is saying that we wear the gospel of peace on our feet, and there's some things we can do. You can be innovative, or you can do the things that have worked for generation upon generation, right? You can come up with your own way of doing this thing. Um, But there are some things that have been tested and proven to work to drive the gospel deeper into our hearts so that we can live out this peace in this world. You see, this gospel of peace, it readies us for the battle because it shifts our perspective. If you look back at that verse that that we started in, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness. It readies us for war because it has shifted our perspective. Jamie said the first week of this series, and I've repeated it every week, and I'm going to repeat it probably every single week. We don't fight for victory. We're fighting from victory. God has already won. That shift in perspective readies us for war. Because when a soldier goes onto the battlefield, and I've never been there, uh, and I'm thankful for all of you who have, um, but... um, When a soldier goes to war, I imagine there's all kinds of emotions that well up within. There's fear and there's anxiety and there's um, just not the the, the not knowing how this is going to turn out and and not knowing what what the situation or experiences are going to be, not knowing whether you're going to come home the same way you left. And there's all these thoughts that I imagine are flooding the brain. But what this scripture shows us is that we're stepping onto the battlefield and we're ready to wage war against the enemy because we don't have those same fears. Because if you went back to that chart where it shows restoration, complete restoration being the end, we know how the battle ends, right? We know how this thing plays out. We know how we're coming home. In fact, we're coming home better than we were when we left. Because when we get home to be with the Lord, we're going to be fully healed, fully restored. There's going to be no more tears, no more pain. All that emotional baggage is gone. All the things we struggled with in this life, they're gone. We before before the Lord, and we're a new creation in Christ Jesus, what God intended us to be. And I can only imagine what the mind of God has dreamed up for us. And so the Bible's challenging us, and it does over and over again, to step on the battlefield with peace and with joy. In fact, in, in James chapter 1, it says, it says this. I think we have it on the slide. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see, it's saying when you step onto the battlefield and you face all kinds of trials, consider it joy because the battle's already won. And let the peace of God overwhelm you. You know, the church is a community that gets to gather together. And it's a community of people who are headed in the same direction. It's a community of people Um, that have chosen to believe in Jesus Christ, place their faith and hope in him, 
And as a result, we are the redeemed people of God. We are God's property, um, belonging to God. Not just to be used for God's purpose, but to be restored to God's perfection. When we gather here as a church, and especially when we share in communion, as we do every Sunday here at Tri-Cities Church, and we come to these four tables around the room, we're reminded when we come to these tables that what Christ has done has won the victory and that we together are on the winning side. And that no matter what happens and no matter what we together go through, that it is well with our souls, that it is well in our lives because the victory has already been won. And so this morning, I want us to come to these tables not as isolated individuals, but as a community of people who know together we are headed in the same direction and that together we will get there. Together we will arrive. Let's pray and then we'll share in communion. God, we do give you thanks this morning that we get to gather in this place and get to be your people who are experiencing your incredible peace that is not rooted in a situation or circumstance, but is rooted in a person, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us on our behalf. God, we thank you that you didn't show us the way and then say, go live that out and do it, and then you may be where I am, but you came to show us the way and secure a future for us that as we live it out, we can live so with the peace and the assurance of knowing that we're going to be with you, not based on any works that we've done or anything that we've accomplished, but simply based on what you've accomplished and what you've done. God, we thank you that you are the good God that has done that. And as we come to these tables, we're reminded that our peace is already secured in Jesus Christ. Help us to live into it. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.